I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can turn to page 906 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. That'll be right where we are in John chapter 20. Uh, Including today's message, I have mapped out five more sermons in John's Gospel that'll take us to the end of this Gospel account, which will be, Lord willing, the last Sunday of November. Then in December, I'm going to start a four-week series. Guess what that series is going to be about in December? Christmas. Good guess. That's right. Now, I'm entitled this, this sermon series, Christmas Hits, and uh, we're not going to be considering Frosty the Snowman or any of those. We're actually going to be looking at some Advent songs from the Bible, one from the Old Testament, three from the New Testament, which sing of, which speak of the hope and the joy that comes because Christ has taken on human flesh and has come to abide with man. And so today, though, as we turn to chapter 20, I'm preaching a message I've entitled, I Have Seen the Lord. Let me give you a synopsis of this chapter we're in in John chapter 20. John has written chapter 20 to give us a little thumbnail sketches of several of the disciples' response to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Last week, we saw primarily Peter and John. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb because they've heard the tomb is empty, that Jesus' corpse is no longer there. They look in, they see the grave clothes, they see the head covering folded up, and John says his firsthand eyewitness account, I saw it and I believed. Next week, we'll consider how Jesus makes an appearance to not just two disciples, but multiple disciples as he enters into a locked room miraculously, and he reveals himself to them as being the resurrected Christ. The week after that, we'll get to the very famous passage about Thomas and his doubts. He wasn't there when Jesus entered that locked room, and so the other disciples told them Jesus is alive, and he said, "Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, and guess what? He saw it. Jesus showed up in another locked room, and he said, when he saw Jesus alive, my Lord and my God. Well, this morning, we're going to see a thumbnail sketch in just eight verses of another disciple that Jesus revealed himself to alive post-resurrection. In fact, this is the first resurrection appearance to one of his disciples, and it's a woman. Her name, Mary Magdalene. He reveals himself to Mary of Magdala, that he is, in fact, alive. So look with me in your Bible at John chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 11 through 18. This is the word of God. But Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the first eyewitness account of the resurrected Christ. The first appearance of Jesus post-resurrection. Now we know that Mary and other women had arrived at the tomb on that early Sunday morning while it was still dark at dusk. They saw that the stone had been rolled away. They saw that Jesus's body was no longer in there, just the grave clothes. And then we saw last week that Peter and John had a foot race upon hearing this news to the tomb. They stooped to look in. They actually walked in and they saw the same thing. They saw the grave clothes of Jesus laying there. Now, before the, the crucifixion and resurrection accounts of Jesus, there is very few mentions, in fact, only one mention of Mary Magdalene in all four Gospels. In fact, it's back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. She's just mentioned really in passing among a group of other women. Notice what Luke 8 says. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, Luke doesn't tell us much about uh, Mary Magdalene's history. We don't know her background, her backstory. I told you last week that some falsely assume that she was a prostitute, a harlot. The Bible never names her as such. However, she's demonized by seven demons, Luke says. Now, you've got to have some type of situation going on in your life where seven demons feel very at home, feel very welcome there. And she was demonized, no doubt, being demonized. She had a wretched state of, it, of existence. And therefore, it should strike us as remarkable that Jesus reveals his resurrection to her first, knowing her checkered past. But this is not unlike Jesus. In fact, we've seen this modus operandi in Jesus before, even here in John's gospel. You go back to John chapter four, which has the woman at the well. Here's a woman coming to the well in the middle of the day because of her shame of her past. She's had five different husbands and the, husband, the man she's living with now is not her covenant marriage husband. And Jesus chooses her, not even a Jew, a half-breed Samaritan woman, to first reveal he's the Messiah of Israel, the promised of God. This is Jesus. Jesus. Amazing. Here's the deal. Listen. The religions of the world, the false religions of the world, have a history of oppressing women. It's true. You can see it in the world today. It's not just Islam. It's Buddhism. It's Hinduism. Oppress women. 
Only Christianity, when true biblical Christianity has arrived on the scene in an area, have women been elevated. And that's what we see Jesus doing throughout his ministry. And though first century Judaism was not quite as oppressive as, say, Islam is today with regard to women, it certainly wasn't an era of women's liberation. And then comes Jesus. Not only does Jesus acknowledge women as having dignity, as having worth, but Jesus purposefully engages with women. He instructs women. He disciples women. He affirms women. He lifts up women. And he even, listen, commissions women for service in his kingdom. I don't think I can adequately express just how profound it is that Mary, Mary Magdalene, former Mary with seven demons, is the first human eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. This is remarkable. And Mary exclaims, I have seen the Lord. Well, from this resurrection appearance to Mary, from these eight verses, I want us to consider uh, several truths about Jesus appearing to her. First of all, it is an appearance that is compelled by love. This appearance is an appearance that is compelled by love. Now, the word love doesn't appear in the eight verses, but the evidences of love are all through the passage, woven throughout. Love is the motivating factor. It's not just the motivating factor for Jesus. Love is the motivating factor for Mary. She's compelled by love to approach the tomb. She's compelled by love, first of all, to approach the tomb. Think about this with me and these series of events that Mary has experienced. First of all, Mary and the other women arrive at the tomb and they see the body of Jesus is missing. Mary goes and she tells Peter and John. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb to verify the report. And upon seeing the missing body of Jesus, verse 10 of this chapter says they just went back to their homes. Now here we are in verse 11, and Jesus, uh, Mary excuse me, is at the tomb. Uh, the text doesn't say, and we kind of have to read between the lines, uh, Mary wasn't sprinting to the tomb with Peter and John, we don't think. Did they pass one another as they're going back to their homes and Mary's coming back to the tomb? We don't know. But for whatever reason, verse 11 begins with this stark contrast and this reality that Mary is at the tomb weeping, weeping. Why did she come back? She'd already been there once that morning. Jesus' body wasn't there. Why did she return? I mean, for all she knew, the body had been taken by grave robbers. I contend Mary came and approached the tomb a second time because she was compelled by love, because of her deep love for the Lord. It moved her to return to his empty grave. The most famous chapter in the Bible about love is what? 1 Corinthians 13. It's known as the love chapter, right? And in that passage, the Apostle Paul gives us three Christian qualities. Faith, hope, love, right? I want you to think about it. On Friday, as Mary Magdalene, who is right by the cross as Jesus is hanging there dying, she sees him breathe out his last breath 
bloodied, beaten, and bruised. His limp body is taken down and taken to a grave. Her faith and her hope were gone. All she had left was love. And the greatest of these is love. And it is her love for Jesus and how, she, how Jesus loved her and elevated her and forgave her and healed her that compelled her even to come back to an empty tomb and to just stand there and weep over it all. This picture John paints is one of the most lovely and moving scenes in all of Scripture. Have you ever spent extended time weeping, grieving, mourning? It just saps the life out of you. Mary probably couldn't sleep all weekend as she just relived the horror of those pictures she saw. And she's just there, an emotional wreck. She's at her breaking point. Mary was compelled by love to approach the tomb. Jesus was compelled by love to atone for sin. The text says that in her grief, Mary stoops to look into the cave, to look into the tomb where they had laid Jesus' body. But this time, she sees something different than she had seen before. Verse 12 says she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. What are we to make of this vision that she saw? What are we to make of these angels appearing to Mary? Mary saw the angels. Peter did not. John did not. How do we explain it? Well, we can't be certain, but perhaps this is a demonstration of what the Bible says in Hebrews 1.14. Notice Hebrews 1.14. Are they angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Could it be that in her deep grief, a loving heavenly father dispatched a couple of angels to minister to her in her time of sorrow? She saw him. But it's curious, John identifies their location in the tomb. One was sitting at the head, one was sitting at the feet. Think about it. The tomb of Jesus, and in fact, archaeologists have discovered what they believe to be the actual tomb of Jesus, the, the garden tomb as it's known. I've got a picture of the inside of that tomb. This tomb is a carved out, hewn out cave in the, on the side of a limestone mountain. And these types of tombs in the first century would have hewn out in them these tables or platform where they would lay the corpse for burial. And so there in that carved space, Mary looks in and she sees the table where Jesus' grave clothes and the strips of linen that bound him are laid out there, blood-soaked grave clothes. And on either side of those grave clothes, one at the head, one at the feet, are these two angelic beings. What is this imaging forth here for us? What is this picturing? The reality is this exact same scene is depicted over a thousand years earlier in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament of the Bible, we have what we know as the Ark of the Covenant. 
If you ever saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the Bible talked about it first, okay? And in Exodus, it describes for Moses how he was to build this Ark of the Covenant. Notice what the Bible says in Exodus 25. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. That's the lid of the Ark. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. The cherubim shall spread out their wings overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. I've got a picture, a depiction of what uh, the ark may have looked like that was constructed among the early Israelites as they were traveling in the wilderness. The mercy seat, that's the lid that would go on top of the box. And the instructions are very clear. You're to hammer out of gold two angelic beings, two cherubim, one on one end of the mercy seat and one on the other end of the mercy seat. And they were to take this Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and they were to take it into the tabernacle or into the temple later and they were to take it beyond the barrier of the curtains and put it in the most holy place. No one was allowed to enter the most holy place of the Jewish tabernacle except the high priest and then only one time a year. When did he enter it? On what's known as Yom Kippur. What does that mean? Day of Atonement. And the Bible says he would enter into that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top and the two angels sitting there once a year. What did he do when he entered? Here's how the Bible describes it in the book of Leviticus. Then he, that's the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And Mary stoops to look in and she sees the blood-soaked grave clothes of Jesus empty and there is an angel on one side and the other side where Jesus has made atonement for sin. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this. We know the Old Testament is all shadows, types, pictures. Hebrews says this, for since the law is just but a shadow of the good things to come, and not the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the, the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then he said, I have come to do your will, O God. He does away with the first. That's the shadow of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to establish the second and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the work of Christ. This is the work of Jesus. He enters the most holy place to make atonement for sin. 
for your sin and for the sin of Mary Magdalene. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He was compelled by love. On Thursday afternoon, the day before Jesus would be hanging on a cross, Jesus told his disciples, not just the 12, but Mary too, this promise. In John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Mary Magdalene was compelled by love to come to an empty tomb and to weep and to mourn, and Jesus was compelled by love to atone for her sin. That leads to the second thing I want us to consider from this passage, and that is constrained by a body. The text says the angels asked Mary a question. Why are you weeping? To which she said, here's why. They've taken away the body of my Lord. I don't know where they've taken him, where they've laid him. What does this response indicate? She presumed Jesus was still dead. They've taken his body away. I don't know where they laid his body. She has not yet put the clues together that she is, that Jesus is alive. But as the words are leaving her lips, she hears a sound of someone approaching from behind, walking up. She turns to look. She supposes it's the gardener. Of course she supposes it's the gardener. I mean, the last time she saw Jesus, he was bloodied, beaten, and bruised, limp, lifeless. Isaiah says that if you looked at Jesus, you couldn't even tell he was a human being. He was so abused. Men hide their faces from the abuse. And here she turns to see a man with no signs of physical trauma, and he's alive. Of course she doesn't think it's Jesus. And then Jesus asks her a question. It's interesting. Uh, He asked the same question that the angels asked. Why are you weeping? And then he asked a follow-up question. Whom do you seek? Whom are you seeking? Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples back in John 10? In John 10, as he is giving the I am statements of I am the door of the sheephold and I am the good shepherd, he said this in John chapter 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. If you are a sheep of the true shepherd, you know the voice of the shepherd when he calls your name. And all of a sudden, this man she presumed was the gardener simply says her name, Mary. Immediately, she knew it was the shepherd. She knew it was Jesus. How did she respond? Look at verse 16 again. Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, the Gospel of Matthew actually tells us how she would have responded, not just verbally, but physically, because other women, when they first saw Jesus alive, how did they respond? Look at Matthew 28, 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, that's the voice of the shepherd. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Can you imagine this scene? Emotionally exhausted Mary, completely spent, 
Mary, been weeping all weekend. She discovers it's Jesus, he's alive, and she's just a mess, cuddled up on the floor, clinging to Jesus' feet. What a picture. And then, (laughs) Jesus' response is not only curious, it's strange when we first read it. It almost seems cold and unfeeling. What does Jesus say? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What in the world are you saying, Jesus? Mary, I appreciate that you've had a rough weekend. I know it's been hard, but don't cling to me. Please don't touch me right here. Don't. Why? Because I've not yet ascended to the Father. There have been all kinds of uh, interpretations or explanations in response to Jesus' statement. Most of them wrong, and I'll tell you why they're wrong here in just a second. Uh, One that I remember hearing growing up was this, that Jesus uh, told her, don't cling to me, because though he was physically there with her, he, he hadn't fully received his ultimate resurrection body, and that wouldn't happen until he was resurrected or ascended into heaven. Almost kind of like, don't touch me, I'm not fully cooked yet. Obviously, that's not it. Why? Because just a few verses from here, he tells Thomas, touch my body. Feel the wounds. Put your hand in the side. Touch and see. So that can't be what it is. It's not like Jesus is doing some MC Hammer thing. Can't touch this. No. Sorry. (laughs) So what is Jesus saying? Do not cling to me. You see, Mary thought she had forever lost the personal presence of Jesus. And it's almost as if by clinging to Jesus, Mary is saying, I lost you once. I'm not going to lose you again. She's clinging to his physical presence as that presence right there was the be-all, end-all. She was holding on to the former manner of relationship she understood and how it functioned. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've not yet ascended. Don't cling to this type of relationship we've shared because there's a relationship status that's coming that is completely different. It's not just that I will be with you physically from time to time here and there. I will be, when I send my spirit in you, always and forever. Don't cling to this type of relationship. When I'm ascended, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And friends, that same promise of relationship is available to every believer in Jesus Christ. This week, Casper was telling me about a social media proposition he saw online. It was directed towards Christians. And here was the proposition. It said, would you, Christian, rather get $3 million or get three uninterrupted days of one-on-one fellowship with Jesus? And you know what Casper said? Give me the $3 million. How unspiritual, Casper. How could you say such a thing? Here's why. He said, I can have three uninterrupted days of fellowship with Jesus through his spirit who lives within me and through his spirit-inspired word any time I want. So yeah, I'll take the $3 million. Thank you very much. Jesus says to Mary, 
Don't cling to this earthly kind of relationship, this just physical, merely one place at one time relationship. When I'm ascended, I will no longer be constrained to just this body, to this physical presence. I'm sending my spirit to all who believe in me. Here's the third truth from this passage. Mary and the other disciples are confirmed in a relationship. The second half of verse 17 marks perhaps one of the greatest milestones of our identity as Christians communicated in the Gospel of John. Look at what he says, Jesus telling her, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This is a significant milestone in the narrative of John's gospel because this is the first time, the first time, Jesus refers to his followers as brothers. He's called them disciples. He's called them friends. But post-resurrection, he says, go to my brothers. This is profound. Additionally, this is the first time in John's gospel out of 120 occurrences of Jesus referring to God as father that he says he's somebody else's father besides his father. He says, go to my father and who? Your father. You see the profound change of relationship that's happening right here because of the resurrection of Christ? Facebook has a relationship status if you are a participant in that social media site. Uh, I've been a part of it ever since non-college students have been allowed to have a Facebook account, which is over 20 years now. When you first sign up for Facebook, you go through and you put in your name and your demographics and all the things, even your political beliefs, whatever. They also ask you to give your relationship status. And you can say, well, I'm married or I'm single. I'm uh, in a relationship and we all know when that happens, somebody decides it's dating, they decide we're going to make it Facebook official in a relationship with so-and-so. But what happens if they break up? I don't know if this is still on there, but what it used to say on Facebook, remember? It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. What's your relationship status? Well, I was in a relationship, but man, now it's complicated. Of course, everybody said, did you see they changed their status? They're, it's complicated. What's going on? What's the tea, right? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. I know what's the team. <laughs> Christian, Jesus says to you, you have a new relationship status. And guess what? It's not complicated. It's not complicated. You are now my brothers. It's not complicated, Christian. God, the creator of the universe, is now your heavenly father. Are you kidding me? This is unbelievable. The reality is this not complicated relationship status that we are now brothers of our elder brother Jesus and sons of God was predicted in the prologue of John's gospel. In John chapter 1, he gave a preview of all the theological and the doctrinal and the realities that he was going to rehearse throughout the 21 chapters. One of those being what is fulfilled right here in John chapter 20. Notice John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, but to all, this is John writing, to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right. In other words, it's not earned, it's not deserved, he gives it. It's not an inalienable right that you were born with, regardless of what the church of Oprah says, not everybody's a child of God. He says it's a right that that you can't just come into. It is a brand new relationship that must be given. He gave the right to what? To become children of God. Friends, this is one of the greatest and the sweetest biblical truths throughout the 66 books of the Bible, that our relationship status has changed, that we are now adopted children of God, younger siblings of the natural child of God, Jesus himself. Again, we're not all born this way. Nobody is born this way. That's just the opposite. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, regarding our native status, our birth status, he says that we were all, by nature, children of wrath. We were not children of God. We were under the wrath of God. In fact, here in John's Gospel, sweet, kind, baby-kissing, puppy-petting Jesus says this to the hypocritical Jews. He says, listen, guys, not only are you all not children of Abraham, not only are you not children of God, you're children of the devil. How's that for a relationship status update? But all who received him, who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Uh, Let's look again at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, that explains how we come into this new relationship. The author of Hebrews writes, For it was fitting that he, that's God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, he's the creator, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering, that's the cross. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's adopted children, all have one source, God the Father. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christian, Jesus is not ashamed because he's purchased your salvation to call you a brother, to call you a sister. And he says this to Mary. He says this of the disciples, go tell my brothers that my father and their father, my God and their God, which leads right to the fourth profound reality from this passage I want us to see, and that is commissioned for a purpose. There are some incredible firsts in this passage we've been considering this morning as we zoom in on Mary Magdalene. Mary was the first, not any of the other disciples, to have an angel speak to her at the tomb, first. Mary was the first to see and touch and speak with the resurrected Christ. Mary was the first to hear about this brand new relationship status, brothers, children of God. But also, don't miss this, Mary was the first disciple to receive the Great Commission. The first. If you've been around church, you've heard of that phrase, the Great Commission. It's repeated and recounted in all four gospel accounts. It's the commission that Jesus gave all of his gathered disciples there before he was ascended, what the mission is, what the job instructions are. 
It's most familiar in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 gives the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The bottom line, the crux, the main point of the Great Commission can be summed up in two words, go, tell. Go and tell. And in verse 17, Jesus says to Mary, go to my brothers and tell them. Go and tell. How did Mary respond to this great commission? Well, look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced. She goed and she told. <laughs> right? She obeyed the great commission. And when she did that, you know what she did? She entered into the family business. I grew up in the family business. Some of you grew up in a family business. If you're a Christian, you're in the family business. And there are different responsibilities, there's different tasks, there's different skill sets, there's different things that we do in the processes and operation of the family business, but all of those different things that we accomplish and we do, whether it's a trunk or treat or whether it's a prayer gathering of our ladies or whether it's a food truck fellowship or whatever you serve in the church, however you serve in the church, those all undergird the primary company mission of the family business. Go and tell. That's the family business. That's the mission statement of the church. Go and tell. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, if he is your father, you have been given this same commission and you have a job in the family business to go and tell. But as we move towards a conclusion, I just want to say for those who may be here today, and you don't know if you're in the family business. You don't know if Jesus is your new adopted brother or if God is your heavenly father. It's very simple. It's what John 1.12 said. To all who received him, who believed in his name. What does it mean to believe? It means not just to believe the facts, but to believe in Jesus is to turn from your own self-rule of your life. I'm in control to saying, Jesus, you now rule. Repent and believe the good news of Christ, his death in your place to make atonement for your sin, his burial proving he was dead, and his resurrection where he can now provide new life to all who trust in him. I invite you to join the family business. That leads to my last thought. All who have entered into a relationship with the resurrected Christ have been given the same promises and are given the same assignment. Go and tell.